Is that everybody? Okay. Is it just you two? Anybody else? We got two classes, so maybe we'll just have one today. We'll find out. All right, you guys ready to pray and go hang out with Mr. John and Mr. Miles? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's pray. Maybe a teacher will appear. Oh, awesome. Look at that. See? It always happens. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we get the privilege of coming together in worship, in our classes. Thank you for uh, each one of these children. Thank you for all of our children in our church, all the students. Thank you for their loving parents. Thank you for teachers who take the time to prepare to show them your word. So bless them as they go, in Jesus' name, amen. My name is Dave Dorst. If I haven't met you, I am this associate pastor here, the senior pastor is... Driving back from Florida soon, and uh, so it's good to be here with all of you. Welcome back to the newlyweds, Eric and Allie. Give a little wave. I'd like to point you out, embarrass you. That's all we'll embarrass, but um, hope that you're making plans to stay for the fellowship lunch, new and old alike. Um, i got a lot to preach here, so we're going to just step it up, get to it, and uh, see if we can make that lunch on time. For those of you who are parents, I'm sure that you've had these experiences, parents of certain age. Uh, your child goes over to someone's house and comes back and has helpful observations, like... Their parents are so cool. They let their kids do all this stuff that you guys never let us do. Or the opposite, man, their parents are so strict. They didn't let us watch anything. And sometimes they phrase it as questions like, hey, can we start eating cereal in bed too? When do we get streaming Netflix and cable and all that stuff? So, I... I'm sure your kids are going home from my house with all kinds of reports. They let their kids do backflip on the couches, and who knows what they say when they leave our house. So I try not to judge based on what they're saying. Um, but honestly, my, my standard line when that happens, good or bad, you know, just comparing why, you know, their, why is their house so different, my standard line is this. Different family, different values. And that's okay. Right? I mean, that's truly what explains how different the rules are at everybody's homes. You know, if, whether you have tons of books and block off reading times, whether you 
pray before meals or not, whether you assign chores, how much, what types of TV the kids are allowed to watch. All those things reflect your values as parents. And so I let my kids know that it's okay that other houses have different rules and, and values. But when you're at our house, you know our rules, right, that reflect our values. All of that leads us into one of those parts of Exodus that most people will skim, if not outright skip, as they're reading through, right? I mean, last week we had the Ten Commandments, and, and you generally want to read those, but then you got three chapters of additional, what we call case laws, rules that God has given to the Israelite community. And they are, in a sense, God's rules for his household, just as we make the rules for our house. And of course, these laws reflect God's values. And are, they're an extension of his perfect combination of holiness, justice, mercy, and love. Now, as way of review, uh, Dr. Dave stated last week that very few people could do the Ten Commandments in under 20 seconds. So I'm sure all of you took that as a challenge and worked on it this week. Anybody want to give it a shot? Ten Commandments. You don't have to say the whole thing. Quick summary. Do not murders in there. You just reel it off. Anyone? I'm not, okay, go ahead, John. Your, your wife's stopwatch. Anyone? Go. Bam. Fantastic. Thanks for not making me do that. Good. That's a great review. Good. And so while we heard last week that if you remember Dave's closing statement, if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandment. Jesus said that. Right? And we're still called as new covenant believers to keep the Ten Commandments, the moral law. They're the great moral foundation given as a gift to all of his people at all times. As we approach today's text, I want to be a little more cautious. I think it would be a mistake to take what we're about to read and assume that these laws and punishments should automatically apply woodenly, literally today, right? These civil laws are for a specific set of God's people in a specific time and place set up so that the nation of Israel could thrive. We're no longer bound by them because God does not have a nation state, a theocracy today on earth anymore. According to Romans 13 and other places, we are called today to obey the laws of the land's that we live in, as long as they don't violate what we believe God calls us to. We need to be careful that, though, though we're not looking to immediately establish these laws here today, we also don't completely throw out these laws without thinking about how they reveal God's character. 
God is a God of justice. He holds the highest moral standards. He's also a God of compassion and love. His laws reflect that mix. You'll notice as we read through, we're not going to do all two and a half chapters that I've been assigned, but uh, you'll notice these laws are very often specific applications of the Ten Commandments. You'll see laws about murder, idolatry, theft, honoring your parents, false witness, all of those things. And while these laws couldn't address every single situation, they were guidelines to be used by the judges with care. God was not giving individuals the power to enforce these laws, right? This was in the context of leadership and judges who would administer justice in a proper legal setting. So, I promise that I will not be able to answer all of your objections, questions about these chapters. Um, That's what community groups are for. That's what your family. uh, Continue to think through these, talk through these. Um, And we're going to skip some sections since it's just such a long text. I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to duck the hard stuff, just the stuff that uh, we can, we can jump over. So let's start with uh, the first section, chapter 21. We're going to take, see in your outline, the verses there, 1 through 11, 16, 20, 21, 26, and 27, protection for workers. These are the laws about slavery. Now, there are, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing, without payment of money. You jump down to verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And then to verse 21, 22. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. And then down to 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Okay. If the law 
of God. The law of Moses is an expression of God's will than a slavery a part of God's will. I'm sure that these verses were used to encourage slavery in the American South, unfortunately, and probably in other areas, other lands. I think what we need to acknowledge is what we think of when we hear the word slavery is what the Bible calls man-stealing. People being abducted against their will and being worked their whole lives with no chance of freedom or basic rights. And there's no way that Scripture condones that practice because it's explicitly condemned in verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Right? Both buyer and seller were to be put to death. I think that would have ended the slave trade quickly if it had been administered. God makes it very clear that that kind of slavery, people owning one another against their will, is not His will. The concept that is spoken of in this passage is not lifelong forced slavery, but something more along the lines of both debt slavery where a person who could not pay a debt could sell himself to work off that debt, or an indentured servitude, where a poor man elected to put himself in the service of a wealthy man. It was a way of bettering his position and preparing for a better life. The servant and his family lived in the master's house, received room and board and an honest wage, In the best case scenario, it was a win-win situation, even though it's obviously possible to abuse. But it was to be a voluntary, a temporary situation. Verse 2 here says that a slave goes free after six years. Right, The Sabbath parallel of working six, resting on the seventh. Though it could, as we read, be extended if the slave wanted it to be. Um, It was not to be forced. It was not to be oppressive. And there was a whole ritual that uh, laid, laid out to show that the man wanted to stay in the master's house forever, where they put a hole in his ear. And I think the the symbolism there, the imagery, is that my ear is open to my master. Now the Israelites had been slaves. In Egypt, God had delivered them, right? The the Ten Commandments starts with, I am the Lord your God who called you up out of slavery, out of Egypt. God didn't want them going back into slavery or enslaving one another. Why didn't He just outlaw it? Well, I think Philip Ryken says it well. Uh, By selling themselves to other members of the covenant community, Debtors became members of stable households where their needs were met and where they could get on-the-job training. They learned how to work in the context of a family. This was all in preparation for their ultimate freedom. Slavery had a redemptive purpose. Its goal was not perpetual bondage, but responsible independence. Now, I'm sure there was another, there's another problem that I'm sure you noticed in those verses, 7 through 14. 
It, it starts very calmly with, when a man sells his daughter, what? Why are men selling their daughters? That's terrible on the face of it. But again, our culture is so different and we need to understand a little bit. Back then, a poor man could send his daughter to a rich man to either improve her prospects for marriage or to marry into that family, either the master or his son. And so these laws are all about protection for her. Uh, if she became engaged to him, to the master or one of the sons, she was to be treated as a daughter. If the engagement ended, though, the man still had to provide for her. And number three, if it did not work out, her family could ransom her back. If any of her rights were violated, she was to be freed. The key here is to understand the Old Testament view of family. Women and children were to be protected. Right? It was a dangerous world. And a woman and a child without a husband or a guardian would be easy to take advantage of. There was no concept of an independent, single woman. Society just didn't function like that. You were defined in your relationship to the family and the tribe. And the guiding principle here is what is best for protecting those women and their children. I'm sure still lots of questions. But we got to move on. Second section deals with justice when there's violence. And again, we're just going to jump through some of chapter 21. So starting on verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then he shall pay life for life eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So, I hope you have your Bibles. I didn't usually write the whole, got the whole text in the outline there, but just wasn't going to fit today. These verses make a distinction between premeditated and non-premeditated murders, right? First and second degree murder, which is something that still factors in our law today, which is intent. Not that accidents or second degree murder goes unpunished. Uh, I grew up with a kid named Matt who went to my church when I was in elementary school, and he grew up to become a linebacker at Boston College, and after his playing days were done, he was... 
involved in an argument at a bar where a man kind of attacked him and went after him and he was able to get away, he started driving away, but uh, accidentally struck the man and killed him with his car. He served many years at Folsom Prison. There are behaviors, there are penalties for behavior, whether accidental or not. And this, these laws recognize that. Now, I hope the kids were listening. Verses 15 and 17. Some pretty severe penalties for back-talking your parents, right? Whoever strikes or curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Death. Now, everything I read is that this was not just, you know, a bratty kid mouthing off. This is a physically abusive rebellious child who is attacking his parent with the intention to hurt or kill them. The Hebrew word for strike, naka, refers to a vicious assault, virtually an attempted murder. So this law was to protect the families. And what is the community, the nation of Israel, but the collection of families? So protected the nation, the very core. And then in verses 30, 23 and through 25, there is the famous or infamous eye for an eye passage, right? Which is called the lex talionis or the law of retaliation, getting revenge. And it's often framed to sound like maximum vengeance, right? Like the motto for a gang or the mafia, right? They take one of ours, we take one of theirs. Now, God had already explained why he would give the death penalty back in Genesis 9, 6. He said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Because human life matters to God it is appropriate to punish the planned murder of human life with another life. But in the context of determining punishments, appropriate punishments for harm done with, within this community of Israel, I would argue that this idea of life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc., is not only trying to fit the punishment to the crime, but it's actually limiting the revenge, and the punishments. You couldn't take a life for an eye, right? And furthermore, this protected the poor and slaves, where wealthy people in, in the societies where they were allowed to just pay a fine would often just do that, and they would just continue their abuse. But if they knew that there was a possibility that whatever they did to the other person Maybe they might refrain. We're going to skip, in the interest of time, the rest of the chapter. Um, most of it is about how liable the owners of farm animals are when they caused violence. You're free to read that if that's of great interest to you. Um, I think the modern equivalent is probably uh, determining consequences when someone dog, someone's dog gets free and does damage, or bites a kid, or something. Um, and, and really, all of this stuff, we need to be thinking about how 
the parallels to our society with, with you know, how all of this would translate to a world with mass technology, mass transit, automatic weapons, all of these things, everything blown up. We don't worry about farm animals so much. But that was extremely important then. But let's go to chapter 22 and explore. Uh, first nine verses, we look at where restitution or repayment, when there is theft or loss. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So here these case laws establish safeguards, liability, restitution, and fines according to the circumstances. As we read and, and try to understand, we have to remember this was a society without banks, without insurance, right? At this point, in the wilderness community, no prisons, probably not good fences. Um, everything you owned was with you, and there was no insurance to soften the blow of loss, which made theft that much more of a threat. And because the court couldn't just sentence an offender to jail time, the sentences that made sense were face-to-face -face restitution, paying back the value of what was stolen or destroyed, often double the amount, which would be a strong deterrent. My dad used to say, we wouldn't need half the lawyers in this country if people just trusted each other. Frank's nodding, so it must be true. And I think that phrase in verse 9, for every breach of trust, is so key. God wanted His people to trust each other, which is why justice, restitution were so important, because He knew what was in their hearts. And He knew what could happen. We see utopias and, and societies of friends and often religions pop up and, and the founders 
present this beautiful vision of, of loving each other and sharing everything until somebody does something nasty to someone else and it all falls apart if there's no rules. And God is here, very clear, from the beginning to curb and to restrain the sin of his people. The next section is a hodgepodge of laws addressing various issues concerning social life, living in close quarters. Um, so chapter 22, 16 through 28. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is, is, it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now we sort of early in those verses is three offenses that merit the death, the death penalty. Sorcery, bestiality, sacrificing to other gods. God was so serious about his people being devoted to him and not seeking other gods and perversions and modeling his holiness. Now we can focus on the punishments and say, well, that's, that's pretty harsh. But when the law is known and the punishments are known and it is consistently applied, those sins would be avoided. Now, the one before that, verse 16, 17, is not a case of rape. I don't know if you thought that when you first read it, but of a, a man taking a young woman's honor and purity away, which were obviously much more important in that culture than it generally is in ours. And I'm actually in favor of making the penalty equal to the other ones. Um, you know, something along the lines of take advantage of my daughter and you shall not be permitted to live. Forget the bride price, load the shotgun. But that's not what it says. Pay the bride price unless dad refuses. And again, protection is at the heart of that. As we come down, uh, the majority of that, verses 21 through 27 shows God's heart for the poor and for the most vulnerable among 
the people. God reminds the people that they were oppressed once and that they should not become oppressors. Right? Israel wasn't the only nation to whom God wanted compassion shown. And as you read that, you see the threats that God, if his anger was aroused because Israel mistreated foreigners, widows, orphans, the most vulnerable among them, he would exact justice. I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall become widows, their children fatherless. He was serious. The final section is concerned with impartial justice. And so we get to chapter 23. It's going to read the first three verses and then six through nine. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. These verses instruct Israel about how to keep their justice system just. Right? They urged refraining from showing favoritism on both sides. Verse 3 says, essentially, don't show favoritism to a poor man. Right? Don't be partial to him just because he's poor. Then verse 6 says, don't deny justice to the poor. No bribes, no false witnesses. Everybody plays by the same rules. Right? The wealthy can't intimidate and win in court by paying more, but neither could the poor unfairly win because of mob justice or the judge wanted to just hurt the rich. Whatever it is, God says, keep justice in your community fair and just. America could learn a lot from these verses. And again, the Lord threatens to right the wrongs of where justice was not done. Well, I hope as we study God's law, especially these uh, civil laws, these case laws, that we don't just look at it and say, wow, I'm really glad I don't have to keep those laws today. I'm sure we will. I mean, because obviously we have our own versions of them. And I realize that if you're looking for a really great passage for your quiet time, as you sit in your easy chair drinking tea, you're probably going to look for those sections of the Bible that tells you how much God loves you and plans to prosper you and He won't leave you, forsake you. And You're probably not going to turn to Exodus 21 and find out what happens if your ox gores your neighbor. I understand that. 
But we don't skip anything at this church, so we're preaching this. But, but I hope we can say with the psalmist, I love your law. Or with Paul in Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Because I'll remind you again that the law is a reflection of the lawgiver. God's heart for his people is woven into that law. Israel needed law. All society needs laws. Just because they were God's chosen people didn't mean that they were going to make the right choices all the time. And as much as we'd love to trust each other to be unselfish, we know that human beings are sinful and in need of correction and consequences if they follow their base instincts and natural depravity. But we also know that the law is there because human beings are made in the image of God and should be valued and protected in all situations. And so Israel in the wilderness and later settled in the promised land were God's chosen people for that time who would reflect His holiness and His mercy. With the guiding moral foundation of the Ten Commandments and then the specific application, Israel knew how to live. And we still read the laws. And we're still reminded that none of us keeps the Ten Commandments well, much less the finer points of the law, much less the ways that Jesus takes the law to the next step. Remember we talked last week about it's not just murder, the act of murder, it's hatred in your heart. It's not just adultery, it's lust in your heart that is sinful. Every one of us is guilty before a holy God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Exodus 23, 7, God says, I will not acquit the guilty. When judgment day comes, we, the guilty, will get what we deserve. Whether or not we were ever brought to justice here on earth with these laws. And unless someone takes our punishment for us, we will be punished eternally, separated from the Holy God for our rebellion and our law-breaking. And yet, we have that one man, the God-man who kept the law perfectly, fulfilled it, who is perfectly willing to take the punishment for our sins on Himself. He's already died in our place. He offers forgiveness and eternal life in exchange for the simple act of turning to Him in faith and following Him. Listen to the words of Romans 8, 1-4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God pronounces us guilty in our natural state, and yet in Christ, we are pronounced forgiven, redeemed, and holy. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be forgiven and redeemed. Amen. Lord God, thank you for our study of Exodus. Thank you for the thrilling stories of Moses being raised up to deliver the people at your command. Thank you for your work to free the slaves from Egypt, bring them out to, on their way to the promised land. And thank you that you brought them to Sinai and you gave them law. You revealed yourself through your law. You revealed your holiness, your justice, your anger when we oppress one another, when we hurt, we kill, we steal, we lie. All of the things that come so easily to us. Thank you that you're a God of order and not chaos and confusion. So you were clear with the Israelite community what was expected of them. And if they followed you, they clung to your covenant. They were a model to the nations around them. They were a light shining And yet we know that came and went. And you did a greater work bringing Christ to the world. Christ who brought the church and makes us all. All in the church are now your chosen people. We are the new Israel. And we have the law of the Spirit and the law of love We don't look for what we can get away with. We look to please you. Because once you change our hearts, Lord, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and we want to please you. And yet we struggle. As Paul acknowledges in Romans 7, it's still a struggle, this side of glory. So teach us your ways. Teach us to please you with the way we act towards one another and towards you. But remind us always of our great salvation because Jesus lived a perfect life and fulfilled every part of the law. 
We are saved by his works, not ours. Saved by the beautiful grace that he extends to us. So we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.